You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. Man, it's so good to be back with you. So I was in Israel for about 10 days uh, over the last couple weeks. It was absolutely uh, glorious, busy, no sleep, and uh, everybody wants the 30-second elevator speech. Uh, Kyle Kroper, our missions pastor, came up to me and he said, Matt, have you got it down to your 30 seconds yet? And I'm like, no, I don't. So people are like, how was it? What was the highlight? What was the best part? And people don't want to sit around and talk about 100 hours worth of experiences. Imagine that. And so I've tried to figure out how to boil it down, and I can't. So I figure what I'm going to do is over the next year or two or 12, whatever, I'm going to tell a story from Israel that hopefully will connect with the message. And I think that will be today's because one of the major highlights of this trip was actually on the airplane on the way there and on the way back. So on the way there, I sat, it was me on the aisle seat. I've got like this leg issue. So I always try to sit with my leg, right leg in the aisle. And uh, in the middle was an Air Force, I think he was a pilot, but he worked for the government, the US government. And then next to him was an Orthodox Jewish man. And uh, every so often, these Orthodox men, as long as there were 10 of them, they would get up and they would put on their prayer shawls and they'd wrap themselves and they'd be praying on the plane. And we had like an extended conversation over the poor airmen. And it set up my trip to Israel. That was on the way out because I had all these questions. And what was amazing to me is he didn't have any answers. He was reading something called the Talmud. It was a book about the rabbis that have written about the Old Testament to try to explain what God is all about. But because Jesus isn't in their purview, they come up across all these messianic texts, all these messianic prophecies, and they don't have anywhere to point. They keep thinking one day he may yet come. But we believe he's already come. And so I'm trying, yeah, thank you. You can clap for Jesus anytime you want. Interrupt me, I'll be okay with that. And uh, I kept trying to insert that, but he never returned the favor of asking questions. But I would ask these questions about, well, what do you do with this? And what do you do with this? And he would say things like, well, I just read this one rabbi. He talked about that. I've wondered that same thing. And I kept thinking, just ask me, just ask me. And he never returned the favor. And I kind of got the sense from this fairly large airman between us that he was tired of us talking over him. And so we went to sleep and enjoyed the rest of our flight. But on the way back, God put me with nobody in the middle and a Jewish lady. We were both on our way to Newark. She lives in New York. She grew up in Israel. She married a Jewish man. And uh, we're both sitting there with about five minutes ago till takeoff. And I look at her and I say, what do you think the odds are we're going to win the lottery? Because there's nobody in the seat between us. And she's like, I'm really hoping. And we're watching each person come by and make eye contact. We're like, no, no, not here, not here. This one has cooties. You don't want to sit here. Blech. Look, you don't want to sit. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Anyway, what happened next is a two-hour conversation where I got to open up her eyes to Jesus throughout her Bible. I, yeah, I was praise God. I wish I could say that I took her to the bath, you know, the bathroom and we, you know, sprinkled water on her or something. I don't know. It was nothing like that. It was nothing like that. I got the sense since it was late at night when we were flying uh, anyway, and we were two hours in, and they turned all the lights off, and I'm watching the people around us again. They were quite irritated. But as we started to talk, and I started to explore passages with her at least four or five times, she said to me, wow, I've never even considered that before. See, in her story, she grew up, obviously, with a Jewish parent and Jewish heritage, but she doesn't have faith. And she was read the stories of Genesis and Exodus, and throughout the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, 
She knew these stories inside and out. But when we would press on things, like I would ask her about King David, she said, he's absolutely not in heaven. I said, really, why? She would say things like, look at the evil that that man did. And as I would explore that further, she would go through almost all the heroes of the faith, Abraham, David, all these men, and say, no, there's no way that he's in heaven. And I said, here's the thing about these guys, Moses, Abraham, David, you know what all of them do? All of them make us long for a savior who finally gets it right. When Moses comes along and he commits murder and then he strikes the rock, what he makes us long for is one who can finally go into the presence of God and be obedient all the way to the end, even if it cost him his life. What we long for when we see Abraham who doesn't trust God and he ends up really using his power to rape the servant of his wife what we find is we long for a hero who trusts that God will do everything he said he would do and wouldn't feel the need to take matters into his own hands. What we find with David is when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed, what we find is we long for a king who will rule righteously and justly on this earth without being disobedient to God. And all of these heroes, they take us right up to the brink of a relationship with God, but they make us say, where is one who will finally be good? finally be worth following. I said, here's the thing. I believe out of your scriptures that his name is Messiah. That's his title. Now, you don't believe he's come, but I believe he's already here and his name is Yeshua. That's what a Hebrew person would call him. And she's like, I don't know. I said, I know, I know, I know, I know. But we can go further back. We can go to Genesis. Look at the garden. Look at this serpent that comes down. She's like, yeah, I got problems with like talking snakes. I'm like, here, look, let's... I do too, right? I do too. Whether it was a literal talking snake or not, here's the thing. And I started going into the Hebrew and the Hebrew word here for snake is seraph. And you've heard of a seraphim. She's like, yeah, those are angels. I know that word. It's a Hebrew word. And I'm unpacking this for, and I'm like, what if that being is not just a literal snake? What if that being is actually a spiritual being? And we are in the middle of a war, all of us, you and me and all of us. And she went, wow, I've never even considered that before. And I kept unpacking her scriptures for her. And as she kept saying this, I finally realized, I think I need to drop this for a minute. I need to go a different direction. And I said, here's the thing I struggle to understand. Do you ever pray? She said, yes. I said, I've seen the Orthodox Jews, like the guy on the way there telling her the story. Oh, they prayed all the time. I said, but here's the thing. God answers my prayers. Do you not find that God answers your prayers? She didn't answer. And so I started telling her stories, stories that you've all heard. Stories about my son and his adoption and how God called us here. Stories about my other sons and how we got pregnant when my wife had no fallopian tube and a baby appears on that side of our body and they go, we don't know. And I go, I know, but I know. Stories about how when our furnace broke in the second worst snowstorm in 2014 and, and we had heat for days and, and we can't explain it, but God sustained us and carried us through. And I'm telling her these stories and I'm going, and I don't just have five or six of these, ma'am. I've got like hundreds of these people I know in my church just like this. And then she looked at me and she said, don't you find it easier though to believe in all of that because you have faith? And I said, honestly, I'd never considered it. I said, so do you not believe there's anything out there? She said, well, there has to be something, right? Something can't come from nothing. Something has to come from somewhere. So whatever he or she or it is, there's obviously a power out there that made all of this come about. 
but I'm not ready like you to call him he, and I'm definitely not ready to name him God. I said, I get that. I think there's time for that. And there was this lull in the conversation. And she said, you know what? I think it really is. I said, what's that? She said, if there really was a God, where was he? Where was he when my people were being destroyed by the Nazis? Where was he? Where was he? If there was a God, why? Why did he let that happen? Look, I don't know where you are or where you're from. I don't know your story. I don't know what brought you to this place today. I don't know the baggage that you've carried. I don't know the things that have happened to you or the things that you've done that you deeply regret. And you wonder if there is a God, why? Why this to my children? Why this to my marriage? Why this to my job or company? Why this to my nation, my country? Why? But after all the theological back and forth, we finally got down to the real issue. If there is a God, why? In the Middle East conversations, what you'll often find is you wish you'd said things better or different. Don't you find that? Like after the fact, like, oh, I should have said it this way, and I should have said this, and I should have paused here, and I should have, and I should have, and I should have. But I could tell you this, in the back of my head, I was praying nonstop. At one point in the middle of the conversation, I had to use the bathroom. And um, so I did, and the whole way there, I'm like, God, help me, help me, help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to say, God, help me, help me, help me. So I have to trust that whatever I said, the Holy Spirit is using to plant a seed in this lady's life. I've prayed for her since multiple times. But I looked at her, and I wish I would have said it better, but I looked at her, and I'm going to translate a little bit of what I said to her for you. I said, I agree with you. But I think you could take that same question, if there was a God, why? And you could also ask it about Yeshua, Jesus. Because here's the thing. We could look at David and Abraham and Moses. We could look at you and we could look at me and we could say all of us are sinners. Sinners means that we have sinned against God. We have broken one of God's rules. One of the things he didn't want us to do or did want us to do and we didn't do it or we did it either way. And so we have fallen away from God. So we, we really can't, rationalize or justify. We live in a broken world and we're part of the brokenness. I'm guilty. So when bad things happen to me, I'm part of the problem. I'm the reason bad things have happened in other people's lives. That's what it means. But Yeshua, according to the scriptures, is the only one who's never sinned. And I looked at her and I said, like we said earlier with Abraham and, and David and Moses and these guys, He's the only one who never did any of anything, anything at all. He didn't deserve anything. And yet, he went to the cross. And I think the ultimate question of if there is a God, why? We need to first reconcile. If God is good, how could he allow that to happen to his one and only son? With that in mind, let me take you to a text in Mark chapter what we see is the Last Supper has just occurred, this thing that we kind of just celebrated, right, in communion. The Last Supper has just occurred. And Jesus then goes out to something called a Gethsemane. It's a hill opposite of Jerusalem overlooking the city. And in Mark 14, 32, it says this. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
It took Peter, James, and John, those three are extra close to Jesus, along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. I want you to get the picture. We're in a garden, and he's taking the disciples. Three of them, he's taken a little further, and then he goes a little further away. According to the next verse, going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Throughout the scriptures, the cup is used as a reference point to the wrath of God. This is Bible Theology 101, and I'm going to make a lot of big statements in a very short amount of time, but I want you to understand the depth of what Jesus is going through. So you can see this in Isaiah, you see this in Job, you see this in the Psalms, and I believe even in the book of Revelation. The idea of the cup being filled with the wrath of God in, in, in the Old Testament is said multiple times. The Israelites, because of their rebellion and refusal to trust in God, they were going to drink the cup of the wrath of God. In fact, in Isaiah 51... God says, no longer will you drink this cup because I will take it away from you, the wrath. I will take away the punishment for you. So when Jesus is now in the garden of Gethsemane and he's kneeling down and he's saying, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. What he's saying, what he's implying is what is about to come next is I am about to drink the cup of the wrath of God. How can Jesus drink the cup of the wrath of God if he has never sinned? And the answer if you were to keep reading the story, is he's drinking it for me. He's drinking it for you. He's gonna take that cup and take every last drop so that when he is being whipped, when he is having a crown of thorns placed on his head, when he is hanging on the cross, he is doing it literally. He's taking the wrath of God for my sin and your sin so that we don't have to anymore. But this phrase here, if possible, I love the honesty of that. Jesus knows this is the story. He knows. In fact, we're told by Peter, one of the guys who's there in the garden that day, in his book that he wrote, 1 Peter, he says, before the foundations of the world were laid, Jesus was the lamb of God that was slain. That means when Jesus was actually forming the foundations of the earth, he knew exactly where the story had to go. So now he's in the garden. What are we finding? He knows, even, he's like, if there's any other way, but he knows there's no other way. This is the plan. It's always been the plan. It's always going to be the plan. It's gonna take you all the way to the point of death, Jesus. So what's he really doing? He's bringing the heart cry of his pain, his fear, his anxiety. He's bringing it to the Lord in this moment, and he's bringing it to bear, and he's saying, God, help me. I don't know how to handle this moment alone. You wanna see the garden? Here's a picture of at least what it looks like today. It was one of those handful of moments that was profound. I'm standing on a walkway here just looking out into these trees. We don't know that it's exactly what it looked like in Jesus' day, but boy, was it beautiful. Here's a different angle of a path. This path, as you kind of come at it from a different angle, you get to see the lush trees, the greenery. It's just absolutely stunning. Not all of the trees, but many of the trees inside the garden are olive trees. Here's the biggest one, the oldest one. 
And the reason I love this tree is because they estimate that it's 3,000 years old. Now, I can't tell you for certainty that Jesus prayed around that tree. I can't know that. But if they are right that it's 3,000 years old, then that tree was in that garden the night that Jesus prayed. Perhaps it is the tree where Jesus knelt down and said, Father, please take this cup from me. But he gets up from where he is, according to Mark 14, 37. He returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Simon, this is Peter. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I love that phrase. I used that a lot in Israel when you're sleeping about two hours a night and you're doing constant nonstop travel and you're feeling sick on the bus and I'm with a group of pastors and we'd be like, all right, let's get off the bus again, you know, let's go to the next site. I'd look it up and say, the spirit is willing, guys. The spirit is willing. It's the body that's weak. But this is powerful. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. This is powerful because the reason we know about these things is because the three guys who were there with him recorded it for us. One of those guys, John, you can read about this. So John chapter 17 writes down the prayer that he heard Jesus praying out loud for us. Love it. Because it makes Jesus real. This is a real garden and a real place in time 2,000 years ago. It's not just a story somebody made up. It's a real place, a real location. You could visit it today. And if you went to visit it today, do you know what you'd see? You'd see that they built a church right next to it. Here's just my little picture of the outside of that church. And uh, what you may notice about the outside of the church is it's in the shape of a teardrop, at least as best as a building can be in that shape. When you go inside, you'll see all of the architecture on the inside is also in the shape of a teardrop. You see it. It's intentionally built because this is the place where Jesus cried and cried out for God to meet him in his pain. What they have found all over their excavations of Israel is these little things called, um, I'm going to say this, I'm going to totally botch this, lacrimatories. Yeah, that's what it, I don't know, how do you say the word? That's what it looks like. This is an ancient Roman lacrimatory, and here is a modern-day one, and the reason I put that one up there is because I knew you'd never see this. But a lacrimatory is a tear jar. And what would happen for thousands of years is people would cry, and they would collect their tears in a bottle, and they would put a cap on the top to hold them in. And they've excavated all kinds of people's deaths and have found these bottles, like, like um, tombs or caskets or whatever, and they've found these bottles inside, some of them still with tears inside. Now, these go back to a 1,000 years before Jesus. They are such a part of various cultures throughout time. In fact, Many times in Jesus' day, it is reported that they would actually pay certain ladies, and the better crier you were, the more money you got paid. How about that, ladies? Some of you are like, I think we could do this. <laughs> and they would cry and cry and cry, and here is at least one of the theories is the way you knew you were done grieving for something or someone is when you didn't have any more tears to collect in the bottle. 
just kind of a cool way, I think, for ancient cultures to, to mark when a moment has passed. You've grieved it enough. It also made a scripture come alive for me, a scripture that I've read many times, but I didn't know what to do with, but now I know what it means. Psalm 56 verse 8 says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Let me do a little Bible study with you for those of you who are fascinated by this stuff. Some of you won't know, won't care, won't make sense. So just stick with me for one second. When we read the Psalms, Jesus says literally that the, those who are trying to arrest him, those who are trying to persecute him, they won't really be able to do anything to him until everything written about him in the Psalms and the prophets and then in the words of Moses, basically the entire Old Testament, until everything written about him is finished. So when we read our Psalms, we read them through the lens of Jesus throughout his life, his ministry, his suffering, and the things that he went through, and then we read them for ourselves. Later today, if you have some time or you can't sleep tonight, pull out Psalm 56, read it through the lens of Jesus himself as he's in the garden, and oh my goodness, you're going to have a little bit of a time with God. It is so powerful and profound. The way that God intersected, this is David. David's suffering a thousand years before Jesus, his life, his story, and intersected it with the life of Jesus. And that's part of the power of, because then he intersects it with our lives still yet today. I have a real passion for men. I have a passion to see men become the husbands, the fathers, the business owners that God has called them to be. I don't have all the answers to their problems. But I find this universalness when I sit with men in my office and nobody else is around, there's this thing that comes out. It's vulnerability. It's honesty. And when men get really vulnerable, they say things like, I've been told my whole life, real men don't cry. But yet the shortest verse in the entire Bible is Jesus wept. Not Jesus trickled a tear, not Jesus had a moment. Not the allergies are strong for Jesus. <laughs> Jesus wept. And in that moment, actually, this is what we're going to spend our entire sermon series after Easter on. His, one of his best friends has just died, and his best friend's sisters are grieving, and Jesus is grieving over their grieving. He's crying with a friend. But for many of the men that I know, you've been told your whole life, real men don't cry. And yet you watch certain movies like Rudy or Braveheart, or whatever it might be for you, and something happens inside you, and you go, <clears throat> I need to go to the bathroom, man. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I got emotional at the end of Cars. <laughs> like, when he doesn't cross the finish line, and he gives up winning, and I'm like, this is the gospel. I was like, <laughs> my wife was asleep, and it was in front of my little boys, so it was safe. They're like, Dad, why are you crying? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Okay. But I literally sat with a man this week and he gave me permission to use this story. This is a strong man, a large man. If you were to meet him, you would have never thought anything of it. And he told me all this junk. Real men don't cry. When a beloved family member passed away and he was feeling emotional at the funeral, he was told very clearly, you need to be strong. Your family needs you. I've sat with 
unbelievable men in this church. Men, if I were to say their names, and they've told me similar stories when they were kids and they went through something hard and they were told, you, don't, you stop it right now. This guy that I met with this week, he told me, he was told, it's a sin to cry. And yet, <laughs> King David says, you've collected all my tears in your bottle. See, Jesus really is the realest, truest man we've ever heard about or read about. Jesus makes it okay to be human. Jesus makes it okay to feel whatever you're feeling, whenever you're feeling it. Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets tired. By the way, he gets angry, you need evidence. He turns over the tables in the temple and he grabs a whip and starts swinging it at people. Yeah, Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets tired. We see him sleeping on a boat. Jesus gets snippy. One lady in a Phoenician town, a, a, a Gentile town, comes to him and says, would you help my daughter? And he's like, we don't throw food to the dogs. And she's like, yeah, but even the dogs get the scraps. She's like, good answer, I'll hear your daughter. Jesus gets tired, right? Jesus goes through the entire gambit of the human experience, which is why if we really want to understand what it means to be human, we come to him. And the whole point to all of this is I think most people, even the people sitting next to you right now who may seem like they have it all together on the outside, who seem like they have all the answers and whatever it is, most people have a story to share. They're just dying for someone to stop long enough and ask them how they're doing. It took me two hours on a plane with a Jewish lady I've never met. But she got there. And man, I'd give anything for another two hours. I've wondered if I failed her. Like, I kept hoping she would ask for my contact information. I could at least point her to my website. I thought it would be wildly inappropriate for a married man on a plane to another married woman on a plane to give out his contact information. And I kept hoping she would so that we could continue the conversation. But now I have to turn it over to God to bring other people into her life. I think she wanted to say more. I think most of the men and the women around you want to say more. They just need a place to say it. It was about 12 years ago or so that Kleenex, yes, Kleenex, like blow your nose, Kleenex, allergy season, Kleenex, came out with this amazing commercial. And they came out with a US version and a British version. And because it's 12 years old, we had a hard time finding a really good quality one. I liked the US version better, but I want you to see this British commercial for a second by Kleenex, and I'll talk about why. Here we go. You come over, chat. You got one minute. You got a couple of minutes for a chat. Do you want to lay your head on my shoulder?
This commercial is paid for by, just kidding. The reason I love that is because Kleenex literally got this idea that they would just set up a couch and a chair and a uh, whatever, coffee table, carpet, and a tissue box and a guy. And he just simply starts asking people questions. In the American version, there's this um, older gentleman who has kind of long hair, looks like he's lived a full life, and he's just crying. He, he looks at the camera, he's like, I don't even know where this all came from. I think most people have a story to tell. They're just looking for someone to stop their lives long enough to ask them about it. Where this series came from, this in the next three weeks is, we had four weeks before Easter, and we knew what we want to do with Easter, and we know what we want to do after Easter. And I said this, I find myself saying the same thing in almost every private conversation I have. The same four things, which you saw in the intro video. And I thought, rather than have a conversation in my office, what if I could have a conversation privately with, I don't know, maybe you know, a thousand people or whatever, all at the same time? And here would be the first thing that I would say to everybody. When you need help, ask. Ask. It takes unbelievable vulnerability and transparency to do it. But I want to go back to the story that we told. I wasn't just telling you a trip about Israel. When Jesus was in his hardest, most difficult, most vulnerable moment, he took his closest friends with him. He grabbed the disciples. He said, come and pray with me. I need you right now while I'm going to the Father. And he's Jesus. He's the creator, the savior, the sustainer of the entire world. And he wanted his closest friends. And his friends failed him. And see, that's what some of you are thinking. And that's why I don't do it. I don't reach out because I don't know how my friends are going to handle it. To which I would say, then we need to get you better friends. Because while I can promise you I've not handled all of my friends' business perfectly, I can tell you that I've loved them and I've tried to own even my mistakes so that we're still friends today. Take a look, Mark 14. This happens again. This is the next verse, verse 40. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning, sorry, they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the son of man, that's him, is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So Jesus right here in the garden, he's got the disciples and when he needed him the most, they weren't there. So what's the reason I'm telling you all of this? It's twofold. Number one, number one, I wanna challenge some of you to be ready and available to drop whatever you have going on in your life to just simply listen to people. They might have stories of joy. They might have stories of laughter. They might have stories of suffering. They might have whatever the story is, but you are going to be willing to put your life aside temporarily. You're gonna stop watching the NCAA men's tournament for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, two hour, however long it takes. And some of you may be thinking, but they talk a really long time. I know people just like that. I see them in the mirror every single day. And I don't mean my wife. And you're just going to listen. Romans chapter 12 verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. 
In other words, if we're gonna be followers of Jesus, we've gotta be ready to change our own tune to accommodate to the needs of those around us. What if you are in a place of sadness and somebody around you is in a place of joy? Do you know what the scriptures never give us the opportunity to do? To change their place to come to us. The call is always for us to change our place to meet others where they are. So even if I'm sad and you're rejoicing, I don't get jealous and envious. I don't throw stones at you. I don't bring you down. I change my position to meet you and your joy and celebration. And if it's a godly relationship, you're going to do the same. So if you're in a place of joy and I'm in a place of sorrow, you're going to change your position to meet me where I am and mourn with me and grieve with me. The whole idea is this, is that as a church, this is the kind of church we want to be, that we are going to love each other in the same way that Jesus Christ has loved us. We're going to follow his model, follow his example, and become more like him. And I love this quote from Scott M. Peck. M. Scott Peck has it backwards. There could be no vulnerability without risk. There could be no community without vulnerability. There could be no peace and ultimately no life without community. That's why the second thing I would challenge you today is if you are out there and you need help with something, with anything, and you have tried everything to figure it out, maybe it's time to reach out to a friend. Maybe it's time. And if you don't have any friends, if you go, I literally don't have anybody in my life that I trust with the stuff that I'm carrying, then it's time to reach out to the church and let us connect you to resources and small groups and ministries where you can find those kind of friends. Because I'll tell you this, you do not want to go and find the blind leading the blind. You do not want to go to an unwise person and ask them for help when they don't have a clue what to do with it and they make things worse for you. You do not need somebody, if you're stuck in sin, who's going to look at you and say, it's okay. God loves everybody. If you're hurting people around you with your behaviors and your actions, you need somebody who's going to love you enough to speak the truth in love and say, brother, sister, you got to stop. You're treating those people like trash. That's why things are going miserable for you. You don't need somebody who's going to pat you on the back and say, it's okay, go get them, big boy. No, you need somebody who's going to say, put on your big boy pants and get in there and change. But you need somebody who's going to stop their life long enough to not just tell you what to do, but to listen to your story. And try to make sense of it. And to love you through it every step of the way. Let me just close with just a couple pieces of advice. Because I never know how a sermon is going to land and where it might be landing for you. This comes right out of the scriptures. Galatians chapter 6, Paul says this. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If you were to read Galatians, you'll see what Paul's talking about is uh, these people are putting a burden on the Christians and saying, oh, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to get circumcised, you got to follow these rules. And, and Paul says, there's only one rule, only one rule. Here's what it is. The law of Christ is the law of love. Now, love doesn't look like the way we're redefining it in the world today, but he's saying, this is what love would look like. Carry each other's burdens. That's what love looks like. If you want to be a group of people who are becoming more like Jesus, carry each other's burdens. I don't have time for that then you don't have time to be like Jesus. And if you don't have time to be like Jesus, then it's time to reprioritize your life. You're too busy doing the wrong things. Paul goes on in verse four. He says this, 
each one should test their own actions. Then they could take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. And you think to yourself, Paul, what are you talking about? You're a hypocrite. Like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No, no, no. There's two different Greek words. The word for load and the word for burden are two different words. And the reason that's important is Paul is saying, look, I'm responsible for my life. What I'm calling us to is not for you to come and fix my life for me, to live my life for me. I got to take care of my kids. I got to take care of my wife. I got to pay my bills. But sometimes life happens. And when life happens, it can become the two-ton brick that broke the camel's back and you're stuck. And all of a sudden there is a massive burden on you. It's not the daily load that we all carry with life. It's a burden that's too great to shoulder alone. And in that case, we need someone to come alongside us and help carry the weight and say, I will walk with you to the other side of this. Now the load's going to be back on you at that point, but this burden, I will shoulder with you. And for those of you who love doing this, I know this because I have felt exhausted over the last two weeks. I've had like four or five retreats in the first six weeks of the year, and I was tired. And I don't like being tired because I feel weak when I'm tired. But I went to lunch with a good friend of mine named Luke Proctor. He's now the senior pastor at Plainfield Christian Church. And I was just like dumping out at lunch. And he was shouldering a load with me, and I was so thankful. He was there. He's actually going to be here at 11 o'clock today. And I was like, how cool is that, Um, that he doesn't have a real job and gets to show up at our church? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love you, Luke. Uh, I may not make that joke in the next hour. but. (laughs) But here's the thing. If you are worn down and tired from doing good, You know what I needed the last two weeks? I just needed some time to sleep. I've slept more than I've slept in the last 10 days. But I sense the Spirit telling me this next part, verse nine. Let us not become weary in doing good. You may need a nap. You may need a break. I get it. But don't become weary of actually doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. There's a whole sermon right here, and I don't have time for it, but let me just wrap up with this. If you keep doing good, sooner or later, it will pay off. It may take days or months or years, but we are trusting that God of the universe has our back and our lives, and this is a promise that you could take to the bank. You will not be wasting your life to continue to do good, first for the believer and then for the unbeliever, because we all have limited time and limited resources. So if you have to prioritize, prioritize there, but by all means, go do good. Maybe today what you need to do is grab a box of Kleenex and keep them with you at all times. But I wanna lay out one last challenge. I don't know where everybody is today, but some of you came in here shouldering a load that has now moved into a burden. And I don't wanna tell you that Jesus never intended for you to carry that alone. He intended to carry it for you all the way to the cross and he intended to surround you with a group of people who would walk with you through it. That's the church. If you are out there and uh, you sense God tugging on your heart, you sense him speaking directly to you right now, I wanna invite you into a relationship with Jesus and into his church. And I know what I'm about to say may seem weird and awkward and who knows why it works, but I just know it does. 
But if right now you're ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you just raise your hand wherever you are? Just raise your hand. And while you're contemplating that, I'm gonna add one more. If right now you are going through something and you don't feel like you know where to go to get help, would you just raise your hand? Don't be alone. What we wanna do is literally pray over you right now and then some people are gonna come to you and give you a card and say, we wanna get your information. I get it. Some people find this extremely weird. I do too, but it works and I don't know why. But if when the service is over, you didn't wanna raise your hand, but you do wanna respond, you can always go to our Connect Hub right out here and just say, I need help or I need Jesus and we will still help you. But I wanna pray now that God would walk with all of us through life's stuff right here, right now. Ready? Let's pray. Oh my God. I see this 3,000 year old olive tree in my brain. And I think to myself, what if that was the actual tree that Jesus knelt beside, maybe even leaned upon the night of his arrest? And what if that was the tree that he looked out over Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers its chicks and protect you under my wings and care for you, but you wouldn't let me. Oh God, please don't let us be a people that even when Jesus is beckoning and calling, crying out and asking for us to let him care for us, that we keep him at arm's length and we don't let him in and we don't let him help us and walk with us and carry us and save us and redeem us and change us and fix all the broken things. God, help us to be a church that embraces Jesus in every phase and stage of life and all of its highs and all of its lows so that we could grieve together and mourn together and celebrate together and rejoice together, God. Help us to be a kind of church that looks a lot more like Jesus than we did even last month. So God, whatever your spirit is saying to each of us right now, God, help us to step into that with boldness and trust that you are God and you are good. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.